Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Any Stupid Questions, the podcast where we ask experts the questions that prove we haven't been paying attention so far. But in a way, isn't it good that we're finally trying to figure this stuff out? This week to talk about immigration is the IPPR Think Tank's Associate Director for Migration, Integration and Communities, Phoebe Griffith. Hello! Hi! And asking the stupid questions with me are comedians Sadia Asmut and Benjamin Partridge. Hello! Hey! So, my first question is, how many immigrants are there in the UK? Okay, we count immigrants by counting people who weren't born in the UK. At the moment, the figure is close to 9 million. That's about 13% of the population. Now, that doesn't sound huge, but an important point is that the population did double in the space of 20 years. So whilst proportionally it's not enormous, uh, mm-hmm. there has been quite a rapid increase in the number of people coming to live in the UK from outside the UK. And my second follow-up question is, how are they both taking jobs and on benefits? Are they all very good at paperwork? Well, they're not taking benefits. They're not taking what? <laughs> if what you mean is they're not taking benefits that you would receive if you were out of work. Yeah. Uh, the vast majority of migrants come to Britain to work, but a lot of them work in low-pay jobs. So therefore, they do receive in-work benefits, of yeah. which there are several, child uh, tax credits and others. So yeah. because migrants tend to work in quite low-pay jobs, they yeah. are entitled to quite a, a number of these benefits, particularly EU citizens living in the UK. In terms of evidence about migrants taking people's jobs, there isn't a lot of that. In fact, by coming here, migrants produce consumption and in in a sense, indirectly create more jobs (laughs) as the population grows. On wages, the picture is a little bit more complicated. Highly skilled people actually see their wages rise as a consequence of migration. And that's because they tend to be a bit more specialised at their jobs. So often their jobs complement the jobs that migrants come in to fill. For low-paid workers, there is some evidence to suggest that an increase of immigration can actually have an impact on wages, and that tends to be negative. And in some sectors, I think that's quite concentrated. I mean, the leisure industry, things like distribution, Mm -hmm. there you will find some quite stark cases where you you will see a large proportion of non-UK workers and very, very low wages. And it's sort of almost become part of the business model for some of those employers to, to operate in that way. So... It's complicated, but overall, it's, I would say, positive. What a very balanced answer. <laughs> if, if, like, somebody's caught without the, you know, basically their papers or they're not, you know, legally allowed to be here, what happens to them? Lots of people now have a duty to check people's status, employers being the primary ones. So if an employer finds that uh, their employees don't have the right papers, they are liable for that. So they're liable to fines and they're liable to get into lots of trouble. In terms of what happens to those migrants... And so um, do they have to snitch? Do they have to tell the authorities or can they just say you're not being employed? That's a good question. I think you don't have to snitch. 
but you do have to sort of stop doing what you're doing. But the important point here is that more and more migrants who are coming from outside the European Union have to be sponsored by an employer. So it's actually quite hard for people to come into the UK without being linked to an employer. It's the employer's job then to make sure that that migrant, when their visa expires, leaves the UK. If they don't do that, one of the consequences could be that in future, they will find it very difficult to sponsor migrants. And that's a big risk if you think about the people who are sponsoring migrants, like banks and big professional services firms. You know, these are big global companies. They can't really operate without being able to bring people from around the world to work in, in their companies. How easy would it be for me to set up life in the UK if I so I have two examples of this if I was coming from Thailand in order to run a really good Thai restaurant unlike the slightly rubbish ones that we Mm -hmm. use so I'm coming I've got a business idea I'm like hey I'm gonna just start a business in the UK how easy would that be and conversely how easy would it be if I floated over from Syria on an inflatable crocodile let's take your Thai entrepreneur amazing chef So there are some schemes that you can apply for, and those have been quite restricted, but they do exist, Mm -hmm. and you have to be part of something called the shortage occupation list. I don't know about Thai restaurants, but this certainly applies to Indian takeaways, for example, and there have been small but important schemes which are allowed people to recruit people from Bangladesh, etc. And those have been really restricted, and the reason that they've been really restricted is that now you have to pay uh, at least £35,000 to actually sponsor a migrant from abroad. Really? If you're not a social, you know, in, in a kind of what would be deemed a critical profession. So it's very unlikely. I mean, I don't know how amazing the chef might be. They Pretty might be good. the top chef. But, yeah. um, if you know, if you think they're worth 35k, then actually you're quite likely to be able to sponsor them to come over. But they can't just decide, I want to go and live in the UK. No, that's going to be really, really tough. They could yeah. if they happen to have in the region of £2 million to set up a restaurant. So that would be something that you'd have to demonstrate. So you could be part of I don't know, own a chain of restaurants. <laughs> mm. And then you could come to the UK and show yeah. the Home Office that you have two million in the bank and you could come and set up as an investor. Mm-hmm. On your Syrian, on an inflatable crocodile, was it? Yeah, yes. or, or <laughs> any inflatable, it doesn't matter. Do you know, it's really hard for, for people to do that. The first thing is that you've got Europe in the way, right? So you yeah. have to get through Europe and Europe's become much more hardcore on these issues. So getting across from, say, Spain, uh, which used to be a big kind of point of arrival, Italy... Greece is pretty tough. You've got Mm -hmm. the Schengen area, you have multiple controls. The most likely thing is that you're going to be intercepted and sent to Turkey, most likely. So once you get to Calais, (laughs) if you manage to make that journey and it's perilous and it's tough, then coming over to the UK is going to be even tougher because the UK has an arrangement with France, which means that they allow us to send everyone back to France and they will help us in a way intercept people who want to cross the channel illegally. Once you get to Hastings, I mean, the UK is a really liberal society, right? We don't have ID cards. If you want to work informally, it's actually quite simple. If you want to find a house, I mean, we know about rogue landlords. So once you get here, you yeah. could probably find a life. You won't be able to claim any benefits, obviously. You won't find it easy, especially now that we've got this sort of hostile environment policy that we've been hearing a lot about in the press. But you might be able to make a life. So, But they'd have to work for kind of cash in hand it for an unscrupulous hand, employee yeah, type thing. Self-employed yeah. kind of thing, yeah. I mean, the more likely route you would take if you are going to come is come in as a tourist for example and just overstay your visa 
But you still can't um, claim any benefits. You can claim nothing. And at you that can't point. If you're get an a adult, national insurance you, number, I take it. Either. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to get your national insurance number sorted. You'd find it really hard to rent Could a you decent. Use someone else's national insurance. There was something where, sorry, I, a mm. friend of mine said that he knew someone who went to Australia on a tourist thing, just stayed there for years, and had to put down a number when he got a job that was like a national insurance number or whatever. Yeah. So he just like had someone else's that he just. I think someone he knew in Britain who like had one yeah. and was like, yeah, I'll just use that. And so he just was using someone else's. And the whole time he was wondering whether he was yeah. basically like paying towards someone else's pension. Uh, yeah. But does that kind of stuff happen? Or well, is if, that you, just... if you think about this Syrian person who's crossed, you know, hostile Europe, got to Calais, you know, actually made that trajectory. I mean, these are really resilient people, right? Yeah. So, you know, if there is a way to make it work, they will. I mean, you hear people sharing beds, right? There's a sort of rota whereby you'll have three people sharing the same bed and they will program their working day according to when they have access to bed. So these are, if you will, the sort of the the part of societies that are the most ambitious, the most driven, often the most desperate as well. Yeah. But these are not, you know, your average kind of person who wants an easy life. They're people who are going to take big, big risks to make it say, work. If I wanted to employ someone, someone with that sort of resilience and determination <laughs> is exactly who I'd want not some feckless oh yeah alright then I'll turn up half an hour late and maybe do a bit of work and then go home yeah. again on the other hand you're sort of letting employers in Britain a little bit off the hook and one of the things we do know is that employers in Britain could sweat a bit harder particularly for example when it comes to investing in skills I mean yeah. we're bottom of the European league table in terms of ensuring that workers in, in Britain have the right types of skills you know in Germany employers take full responsibility for ensuring that you have progression you know protecting your rights in the labor market we don't do that so you can see why for a British person being offered you know a low wage job with very little security very few prospects uh, of progression you know to you will suddenly become quite feckless. Yeah. Meanwhile, you know, if, if a migrant arrives here having left everything behind, the yeah. sort of, if you put it on balance, that's a kind of easier decision, right? So I think it's kind of not quite comparing like for like. Oh, okay. <laughs> again, very balanced. Um, Do they have to take like a citizenship test? No. No. Um, so you do if you want to become a British citizen. Oh, okay. But not all migrants do that okay. um, and it takes a while to be entitled to do that so you have to be here for five years and then you can sit the life in the UK test which is this test I'm sure we could laugh about if you had some of the questions but I certainly would fail it abysmally and I think most people <laughs> do so that's sort of one barrier I mean if you're coming to Britain say as a skilled migrant you have to earn £35,000 a year um, you're an employer has to sponsor you, you have to pass an English language test, although the assumption is that if you're earning that amount of money, you're probably pretty fluent. You have to pay an NHS search. I mean, there's lots of things. It's super bureaucratic and time consuming. So it is a, an investment of your time and energy. And likewise, if you want to come and, you know, you marry a Brit, you want to come and live in Britain, you don't have to pass uh, citizenship okay. test, but you, you do have, have to pass, pass an English tests. language test. Yeah, yeah. love tests as well. <laughs> and those love <laughs> tests, yeah. And you also have to, I mean, your family needs to earn more than £19,000 a year, for example. That's the, that's that's, the mad one for me. I can't understand yeah. why... Because thirty-five grand's a lot of money. Like that's more than most yeah. people earn, right? A nurse isn't going to be earning that. Well, yeah. nurses are on something called the shortage occupation list. So oh, we okay. made an exception. Oh, I think so, someone yeah. in the Treasury worked out that training a nurse in Britain costs about 10 times what it costs to recruiting one from, you know, I don't know, Philippines or Spain for that matter. So that makes 
sense from the government's perspective. But as you as you rightly point out, you know, some of the big labor shortages aren't in the kind of high tech sort of engineering and, you know, uh, banking sectors. They are in sort of often you know, very important, but not particularly well-paid jobs. What I think is frustrating about when you get, you know, like in the 60s in northern towns, there'd be employers with their factories putting out calls for employees all across other parts of Europe and the world because they knew that they could get people coming in and pay them much less than the local population. And that obviously has led to a tension in some areas where... And even now, like, there'll be a big factory, like somewhere like Sports Direct, and they'll be employing people on such a terrible basis that, as you say, the local population don't want those jobs. Why aren't we punishing employers more? Why is it the immigrant population that are taking all the flack for this? Yeah, well, I think we, we, we should be tougher at enforcing our laws. I mean, that's been a sort of victim of austerity in, in many ways, as, as lots of other things have been. And I guess, I mean, we have a very strong employer voice in the UK. Um, they make a very compelling case that, you know, with more regulation come less jobs. Mm-hmm. That's the message that we've been hearing a lot for a long time. You know, the UK has produced a huge amount of jobs, and that's partly because employers have had an, an easier ride. Yeah. Compare that to the situation in, in France, for example, we have a really kind of regulated labour market. And and there are less jobs and therefore you have higher unemployment. So that's the sort of case. And I think to some extent, employers won that debate. And now we're revisiting it here in the UK. I don't know when this is going to go out, but we're recording this on the day that Amber Rudd, well, not the day she resigned, she resigned last night, but Amber Rudd is gone. Yeah. We have a new Home Secretary. Yeah. So this whole hostile environment. Yeah. Was this created because it's a necessity or was the hostile environment and the uh, wanting to hit targets with immigration numbers is this purely about winning votes in the heartlands of britain i mean it was a vote winner (laughs) and 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 we we've seen sort of analyses of focus groups that show that that net migration target played brilliantly amongst kind of key swing voters so I mean, as a sort of vote-waning strategy, it's sort of delivered in 2015, right? Um, That doesn't mean it's a good idea. absolutely. (laughs) And one of the reasons it's not a good idea is that it's driven this sort of target culture and, you know, the way that departments like the Home Office operate is that they deliver, right? Their, Their mentality is about stopping people doing things. And if what they're being told is, we want you to stop people coming to Britain, yeah. then they will develop policies that are about making people's life as difficult as possible. So hostile environment, basically, the Home Office doesn't have a huge money making machine. So one way it could be thinking about it is we're going to employ lots of kind of border enforcement agents who go around and check people's status. Mm-hmm. That's going to be really expensive and it's probably going to be impossible because we don't have ID cards, which is something that's, you know, we've kind of learned the implications of that in, in relation to all the Windrush migrants this these past couple of weeks. So the next kind of level of kind of intervention that you're going to do is sort of say, well, we have to make people's lives really, really hard so that they want to leave, right? Because that's yeah. the other target you're trying to meet. You know, people can come, but we also make, need to make sure that they go. And that's what hostile environment was about. You know, we have to make it really hard for people to have a job, to get a bank account, get a home. And 
hopefully, as a result of that, they will make the active decision of packing their bags and going back. I don't think, you know, we as a, the British public did not vote for a hostile environment. It voted no. for immigration numbers to be brought down. But if you think about how you do, do that in practice, hostile environment was the, the answer that the Home Office came up with anyway. And so did, did the Home Office go after the Windrush generation because it was easy for them to just go, well, let's get rid of these people? Then? I don't think it's as explicit as that. I think people just fell into this. And, you know, you have people being given a quite sort of black and white sort of list of things that they need to check people off yeah. against. And, yeah, they find that you don't have the right documentation and there you fall through the gaps. So I may as well ask this question because the panel might not. Um, what, what are the negative sides of like immigration or migrants? Like why, do, are there any? Uh, I mean, I think I mean, it sort of goes back to the very beginning. There's been a lot of change in Britain and whilst, you know, in London it all feels very kind of much like the mainstream in parts of other parts of Britain it's very, very new. And that has an implication mm. for people's attitudes. I mean, people interact less with people from other cultures and other races. So there's a sort of adaptation that needs to take place. It's also very practical. You know, schools outside London are often not that well prepared to deal with the fact that some children are arriving and they can't speak English very well. Or, you know, the NHS, A&E's uh, department suddenly becomes very, very kind of uh, overwhelmed because say in Poland, you would go to the hospital to get sort of basic treatment and there's no real concept of a GP. So suddenly you're having to ensure that, you know, there's a, a shift in the way that people operate and expect to receive public services. I mean, I think there is a kind of, if you will, not a, a tax, but it, there is a cost around sort of coming from a different culture and and sort of trying to adapt to both the kind of practical things mm. that you need to do, like send your kids to school, like get your prescriptions, like sorting out your tax, etc. That's costly. And I think also, I mean, a lot of migration recently has been very uh, transient. People coming, going, you know, as, as by merit of being part of the European Union, people have had that right to move around. That sort of population churn can be actually quite destabilizing you know people talk to me about the fact that they feel like they live in a building site and I think we've all experienced that you know the fact that you get home from work and there's a group of guys outside drinking and you know they might have very good reasons to be doing that but the world feels different and you know particularly if there's a lot of people moving into a single community, which is often the case, that can actually be quite disrupting. And you'll hear, you know, of examples in most UK towns and cities where there's been a part of the town or the city that feels very different, that doesn't, you know, isn't what it used to be. And and I think that's a kind of a symptom of that kind and of what migration. Can, what can immigrants do to be liked more? I, I read a really good piece. I can't remember who the journalist was who said everyone should buy a dog <laughs> because it <laughs> opens up conversation. I think it's yeah. a really good point that mm. actually often, you know, there's that <laughs> British Reserve thing and people don't talk to each other and mm. British people are often full of questions in the way that you are and they feel inhibited. So I think it is a sense of hanging around, you know, the school gates and actually maybe making that little extra effort of not just talking to your Italian mums and your whatever, but actually saying, yeah, I am going to invite, you know, the British mum who looks a bit distant, but clearly is a bit shy or a bit reserved and get her in for a cup of tea. I mean, that that to me could make a big, big difference. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. 
Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. And with what's going on, you know, in Syria and stuff like that, is, there's been more and more talk of governments removing people's citizenships. So, like, maybe, you know, the people from ISIS, or people from Britain who went to ISIS, yeah. the government kind of saying, well, we've we revoked their citizenship. Yeah. Where does that leave them? Because I always thought that was technically impossible mm. um, for that very reason, because you have to be a citizen of somewhere. Yeah. Um, and um, I don't quite understand that, but it has been a small handful of cases. Technically, it is impossible. You can't. So, so they usually do it if they've got dual nationalities, but if they've yes. only got that nationality, is very rare. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. if I, because yeah, the the idea of making someone stateless. Yeah. If I, so I am, I have not only my my heritage is all Nottingham going back <laughs> generations. Mm. I mean, I'm almost certainly very inbred. You've got yes. dual Nottingham <laughs> London citizenship. Yeah, yeah, that, that, yeah. <laughs> There's a club in Nottingham called ISIS. Is there? Mm. Well, well, this. It, not that you I know. That. You don't even have to leave Nottingham. I to have, <laughs> if I went, I me a very white, very Nottingham. I thought you were a Thai chef. <laughs> very Anglo-Saxon woman. If I went and joined ISIS. Could the British government technically strip me? Because it seems to be a thing that they only do for people, even if they don't have dual citizenship, if they're like maybe second generation British and they can yeah. go, oh, but you know, your granddad was from this place, so you can be the. Like, what would they do with me if I joined ISIS? I think <laughs> I, I think they'd just put they'd you in prison for a very long time. Like, I think honest. they'd let you off. They you have that option. They would let her off. I don't know. I she, don't know. she looks I, harmless. I, mean, <laughs> I think they would let Honestly. me off. I think they'd oh, say yeah. she was a victim and probably sell her story to like a paper or something. I it feel could be. Yeah. Stripping there is double standards in the in, yeah. in the system. Yeah. Definitely. And do human rights come into it? Like, say, for example, where there's illegal immigrants, are they? Yeah, certainly if you, for example, are being threatened with deportation, then you have an option to claim asylum, for example, if you think that your human rights would be at risk at, okay. at, you know, in your country of, of origin. Now, it would be up to the Home Office to decide whether you have 
a right to asylum, but that would certainly be within your rights, and, and people do do that. Okay. Also, you know, if you want to be reunited with your family, you know, you you have a right to family life, and that's been one of the challenges at the moment in relation to family reunion in Britain, having because it's become so difficult and so costly. So there are lots of human rights cases around the fact, you know, the right to family life. So yes, human rights do definitely come into all of this. If we think about people's attitudes to immigration on a, a sliding scale. And at one end, you've got there should be no immigration and Britain should just yeah. be full of people who are indigenously British, whatever that means, and no immigration at all. And on the other end, you've got anyone should be able to come at any yep. time and there's no immigration restrictions whatsoever. Could either of those worlds exist? Could either of those Britons exist? Oh, or I see. Would okay. it all go wrong? Could either of those worlds exist? No. And I mean, I guess the good news is that there's probably about 20% of people in Group A and another sort of 25%, which is apparently increasing as a consequence of demographics, but who are in Group B. And, you know, just over 50% of people in Britain are in Group C, which is... Somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle, you know. And we why, won't but control... why, would those, why would those go wrong, those two worlds? Oh, OK. So a world with zero immigration, I think it would be really expensive to start off with. I mean, if you think of Trump's proposals, building walls across sort of borders style, you know, enforcement of at a level that you would have to resource at, you know, it would be difficult. It would have implications, diplomatic implications, you know, if we're talking about, for example, striking trade deals with countries outside the European Union. I mean, the Indian government has already made it really clear that they're not happy with our attitude towards immigration and how we treat uh, Indian nationals in Britain. So we need to make compromises around that. The reality is that our population is super diverse now um, and people obviously create links across borders right so it would be just really difficult to enforce an immigration policy which would not allow people to get married with people outside the UK to you know move around companies have become really complex things they're not sort of little kind of entities that operate within one country you know we're in a global economy and companies need people to move around so I mean that is kind of implausible. So sorry, UKIP. That's impossible. Yeah. That is impossible. <laughs> Although UKIP claims that they are quite happy with skilled migration. It's unskilled migration that, that they're it. concerned about. So, yeah, so they're, they that's sort of um, uh, Group A. Group B, no borders. Do you know, I think what we would have to compromise, and this is something that I care about because, you know, I work for a progressive think tank, is things like welfare. I mean, at that point, you would either have to decide that welfare is something that everyone's entitled to and that is difficult I mean that was one of the really difficult discussions we had before the referendum you know if I contribute and I've contributed for 20 years of my life why would someone who's just arrived be entitled to exactly the same thing as I'm entitled to so that's a difficult one practically it's also really difficult I mean if you think about the pressures on the NHS for example how do you regulate that to ensure that you know, people aren't coming to have operations, right? And and then leaving on that is just so unsustainable. And finally, I think there is a sort of level that, you know, people can tolerate change. I mean, you guys are metropolitan Londoners who have probably travelled quite a bit, but that's not the case for everyone. And I think you need to sort of accommodate the fact that not, not I'm not talking about the biggest, but the people who sort of think, I really care about my street. I don't want it to become alien to me. I want to sort of retain a sort of certain certain connection with my neighbours. I want to understand the language that they're speaking. That's 
that's okay, right? So yeah. I think you so wouldn't those, be able to sustain the, yeah. that if you had free open borders. I think that would be Those tough. are things that are always described as being legitimate concerns by yeah. politicians on question time. There'll be some kind of red-faced bloke going, <laughs> send them home. And then the politician never wants to alienate that person. So they go, well, there are legitimate concerns people have. And that yeah. always sounds to me as just kind of like a dog whistle racism thing of going, I know where you're coming from, I mate, don't worry. You. Where does racism come into it? Yeah, I mean, I focus group a lot. And, you know, recently I've been talking to a lot of Leave supporters and you you sort of know when it's that and when it's sort of legitimate. And we normally have 20 people in the room and there will be one person where you sort of think, actually, this is coming from the wrong place. For the vast majority of people that I speak to, it tends to be I'm worried about, for example, my child's school. The class seems to be really struggling because five kids have arrived and they don't speak English and I'm worried that the teacher can't cope. At that point, I am listening, right? And I think it's important that I engage with them because clearly either we're not resourcing that teacher properly or we're not thinking creatively enough about how we allow children to learn really quickly, right? And a lot of evidence out there that shows Mm -hmm. that within six months, young kids can catch up very quickly and they can sort of be chatting away in the playground. So... So I think that's when you really do need to sort of tune in to what people are saying and sort of start thinking, well, what are the things that we should be doing? What do we need to pay for? How do we need to run our services differently to really tackle those concerns? If I can um, ask a question, this came through on Twitter from David Smith. And he says, when I'm arguing with my family about immigration... This is always the question they ask that I can't answer. Why do all the refugees slash asylum seekers at Calais want to come to the UK? Why don't they settle in the bits of Europe they've already travelled through? I'm getting boring, but it's because of... Often it's because of either jobs. I mean, that's the big pull factor, right? And as I say, getting a job in London is a lot easier than getting one in Vienna or in Berlin. Yeah. I mean, the other reason is that we already have quite a large settled migrant population. And the first thing you will do when you migrate out somewhere will be to find your co-nationals, right? I mean, that's sort of the big pull factor. I mean, I don't think it's maybe not so much the case since the referendum but Britain does have a reputation for tolerance and you know certainly in my experience analyzing Europe the the attitudes are just different you know there's a more kind of it's it's not hostile it's not sort of overtly racist but it's sort of it's cliqueiness and I think yeah in in in, certainly in a place like London or you know one of the big kind of diverse metropolitan centers Birmingham Bristol increasingly you know, there's, a, there's an ease about it, a sort of everyday sort of interaction that you might struggle to find in Europe. So I mean, we're very accepting of migrants. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think on an everyday level versus on a political level, yeah. yeah I mean, I, I and this is comparative, right? And I think we've had a, I, I mean, this and and migrants have, you know, I interview a lot of people who've opted for Britain rather than elsewhere. And they will say that, you know, I find it much better to live in London because I just melt in. You know, I just want to be, I don't want to be conspicuous. I guess they don't stick out. I've been on holiday to lots of Polish cities and everyone is white. And if you see a non-white person, you kind of go, oh, gosh. And not 
not in a racist way, but in a kind of oh god, I've I'm not I've only seen white people for the last week, and you realise, and you go yes. oh god, that's odd. Or Where, like yeah. when you're a tourist and you go to France as a British person with an English accent and they um, they just look at you they hate you I'm going to love it this is why I mean I really love France because I love their disdain for everybody yeah. else it makes me it really turns me on if I'm being honest <laughs> I can understand why if you were coming through that you know it's easy for me as, yeah. as, a, as a member I mean, of ISIS it, to get yeah. through it <laughs> well you just want to, an easy life I guess as far as possible and to get a job right and that probably is easier in Britain than elsewhere Looks relatively well in Britain but as you say there are kind of problems around the edges mm. you will sometimes get people saying multiculturalism doesn't work that comes from the right in terms of the national international league table of places where multiculturalism is working where is britain are we doing quite well yeah. and are there places that do better than us so if you look at britain in relation to immigration and public opinion up until the referendum we were as a bottom or top of the league table is in we were one of the most anxious sort of populations in the developed world so and that was kind of uh, proven but it was almost kind of the flip or the mirror image in relation to for example diversity so you know attitudes towards questions such as would you mind if uh, a member of your family ma- uh, married someone from a different race you know there we actually compare quite favorably um, so if you want to use that as a kind of proxy for multiculturalism and whether it's worked then actually we're not doing that badly and then in relation to sort of how minorities or newcomers sort of integrate into Britain. Again, I mean, you know, a lot of the questions that are asked, I mean, they tend to be sort of quite big questions like, do you feel British? But also more symbolic questions like, do you wear a poppy uh, on Remembrance Day? Again, yeah, yeah, well, exactly. (laughs) But minorities tend to wear it more than, than, you know, white British people. So, So there is definitely progress. And I think... They are kind of flare-ups. There, you know, we've we've experienced riots. We've experienced, you know, terrible examples of xenophobia and racism. But I think overall, the trajectory in Britain probably is positive. And are there other countries that do it better than us? Well, Canada is always sort of touted as the best. The Scandinavians don't do that well no. on this stuff. And you know, Canada is a fascinating example of the fact that government has been really, really sort of leading on this stuff, not just on the integration stuff. You know, for example, when you become a Canadian citizen, you're invited to become a member of all the national parks for free. So you know, they they kind of they welcome you in, and you know, I sort of try to think, well, how about the national trust in Britain sort of offers every new citizen, you know, and that's not going to happen, but. That's the kind it's of spirit nice of it all, right? Yeah, it's not lovely, exactly. Um, so they do it very differently to us. And there's a sort of a whole kind of discourse around the fact that, you know, when you come here, we want you to stay and become a citizen. And when you become a citizen, you, we want you to feel Canadian. Now, some people get a bit oogie about it, but I think that sort of shows, you know, real commitment to the immigration project yeah. because it's both things, right? It's both kind of making sure that you're getting the workers and the nurses and all of that, but also making sure that people come and, you know, participate and feel part of something bigger, I guess. Why is it so maybe. hard to get to America? Well, it's not, to be honest. Really? I mean, America, if you want to live under the radar, is probably an easier place and an easier option than sort of many... Uh, European countries for sure. I mean, I think it's quite similar to Britain. You know, we have a labour market that's not only producing lots of jobs, albeit quite poorly paid jobs, but we also have a really, you know, easy way of hiring and firing people. You know, we have our labour laws are very 
flexible. We let people kind of take someone on board and fire them. And that just kind of creates a kind of labor market that's quite migrant friendly, if you will. You know, mm. people who can come and just get their foot on the ladder, get into work. You know, our houses are kind of expensive. But again, you know, you try and rent a house in Vienna and you'll sort of realize how difficult it is. There's all sorts of checks and other regulations that, that we don't have. As that's much. what I th- my final question was going to be. If I were an alien of indeterminate ethnicity and I landed on planet Earth, which country would be most welcoming? But it's Canada, isn't it? You'd go to Canada, wouldn't I? I'd usually go to Canada and I'd marry a Mountie. I mean, uh, yeah, Canada, I think you want to go somewhere that's really diverse. Yeah. So somewhere like Brazil would also be quite interesting. Um, although in Brazil you might get murdered better weather (laughs) (laughs) than Canada either way (laughs) yeah so I'd personally opt for Brazil but yeah Um, I'm going to ask you if there's anything to plug really Uh, Benjamin Partridge I make a podcast called the Beef and Dairy Network podcast and I would like you to go and download it. It's Fantastic. funny. And Sadia? I also have a podcast. It's called No Country for Young Women. And yes, I'd love you to subscribe and give us five stars. And uh, Phoebe, is there anything you would like to plug? Well, I'll, I'll plug the Institute for Public Policy Research. Uh, we do a lot of work on lots of subjects, not just immigration, but everything from the economy to the future of the labour market. So, yeah, bear with us. It's, it can be quite dense, but it's always well-researched and, and sensible. Well, thanks to my guests, Phoebe Griffith, Benjamin Partridge and Sadia Asbutt. Thank you very much, guys. Mm-hmm. Any Stupid Questions was written and presented by me, Danielle Ward, and produced by Ed Morris for the internet. If you enjoyed it, feel free to follow us at our Twitter address at Any Stupid Cues, where we put out extra little bits and ask audience questions that we sometimes use and sometimes don't. And please feel free to rate, review and subscribe to us wherever you got this from. Bye! Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news! Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.